Good morning. How are you guys today? Good. I've got two bottles to show you today. This one right here, you might know what this is. This is called ibuprofen. Some companies, there's a company out there called Advil. A lot of times we just call this Advil. This one right here is called acetaminophen. Sometimes people call it Tylenol. We have plenty of both in our house. In fact, I grabbed two bottles that I found that we never used because I didn't even know they were in this particular drawer. We got other ones that are actually an even better version of these because they dissolve real quick in your stomach and they work even faster. We live at a time when we're pretty blessed. God has allowed our modern medicine to get to a point where if you have a headache, you could take some medicine, maybe something like this that's designed for kids, and your headache goes away. If you get a little older and your back is hurting, you could take a couple of these and guess what? Your back won't hurt anymore. Maybe you got some sore muscles or a bruise or a fever, and if you take some of these, you feel better. And these are just two examples. I bet you at your house you got all sorts of stuff in your medicine cabinet that your mom and dad have bought. There's probably some medicine for a cough. And I bet there's probably some medicine for a stuffy nose. Maybe there's some medicine for some allergies. If you get really sick, like I was a couple of weeks ago, you could go to the doctor and they'll give you some antibiotics. And then a couple days later, you feel so much better. There's all kinds of wonderful medicines, and these can be a blessing from God. But there's a danger for us. Sometimes we might think that we could just always be comfortable. And in fact, we should always be comfortable. We should never feel pain. We should never feel sadness. There's some people who think that if you're sad a lot, you could just go to the doctor and get a pill. That's not supposed to make you sad anymore. Today, we're going to talk about suffering. We're going to talk about pain. We're going to talk about how our God loves us so much that sometimes he even lets us suffer. Sometimes he even lets us have pain. And there's good reason for that. You guys know that Jesus died on the cross to take away the sins of the world. We talk about that all the time. And you probably also have figured out by now that his suffering on the cross hurt him a lot. He was suffering our hell. He died our death on the cross so that we could be forgiven. But he did not die so that we could have a perfect life here. He did not die so that we would have no pain here. Because this life is filled with sin, which hurts our hearts. This life is filled with death, which makes us sad. Jesus came to give us perfection in heaven forever, where there will be no more sin, which hurts our hearts. There will be no more death, which makes us sad. Never again. And Jesus wants this for us so badly that sometimes he lets us suffer here to protect us. How could Jesus use suffering and pain to protect us? Here's how. You ready? If we never suffered, if we never had pain, our sinful hearts would get pretty happy here. They would think this life is pretty awesome and that this life is good enough. We don't need God's promises of heaven. 
And that just will not do. The promise of heaven is so much better than even the best that this world has to offer that sometimes Jesus lets us suffer. Sometimes Jesus lets us feel pain to remind us to focus on what he says. He has promised us something so much better than what this life can offer. Even suffering, even pain can be a blessing. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, your love for us is so great that you came to this world to forgive our sins with your death on the cross. Thank you for that. Help us to better understand each and every day why you promise that we will suffer in this life. Help us to better understand your great love for us even in pain, even in suffering. In your name we pray, dear Savior. Amen. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The portion of God's word that we're going to focus on today for a little bit comes from Paul's final epistle, 2 Timothy chapter 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, And in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is the word of our God. So this is the, the, the final letter that we have of the Apostle Paul. If I would have kept reading a few verses later, you would have heard that His trial in Rome had begun, and it wasn't going too well. You might remember in the book of Acts, when Paul was on trial in the land of Israel, he had appealed to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen, and now he's in Rome standing trial before the the Roman government, and he just says, all my defenders deserted me. Didn't go very well. And Paul sees the end is near, as you just heard. He's run his race. He's near the end and now awaits him the crown of righteousness. And he's writing to young Timothy, a pastor following in his footsteps who had known Paul for a very long time. And he's just reminding him of all the things that he had learned from Paul over the years, both by his direct teaching and by his example. And I want to begin just by reading you a couple of examples of the things that Paul was saying to Timothy in this final letter 
in the chapters leading up to the portion we're focusing on today. He writes, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given in Christ Jesus to us before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil, who has taken them captive to do his will. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the, of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Now, that was just little snapshots throughout chapters 1, 2, and 3 of 2 Timothy. There's a whole lot more in there, but what themes did you hear? Suffering, persecution, follow my example, and then giving exact, specific, frank descriptions of what that persecution would look like in the world, what the world would be like so that he wouldn't be caught off guard by what he faced as a follower of Jesus. 
And at the end there, I wanted to get to that part where he referenced Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra because we could track that through through the book of Acts on Paul's first missionary journey. And we know exactly what happened in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra just like Timothy did. You see, when Paul got to Antioch, he went to the Jewish synagogues and he began to preach the gospel to the people who were waiting for the Messiah. And we're told that they were so intrigued by what he was saying that everyone there wanted to hear him again the following week. Word spread and the entire city of Antioch showed up to hear Paul preach the next week. And you might be able to guess what happened next. The Jewish people who were not drawing that large of a crowd, it would kind of be like, you guys show up today, this is such an earth-shattering sermon for you. You go and tell everyone, and next week the entire town of Swamico shows up. The only difference is it was a guest preacher who preached, not me. And it was that guest preacher, like you're going to have the next few weeks, who had these earth-shattering sermons. And then the people who had been teaching, they got real jealous. Paul left those jealous Jews followed him to the next town. And when the people there responded well to the message, they turned the crowds against him. And so then he went to Lystra and he told a a, a paralyzed man to stand up and walk and the people in Lystra thought the gods had come down. They were worshipers of Greek deities. And Paul and Barnabas said, no, 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 we're not gods, we're just men like you. And they began to preach the gospel and then these Jewish leaders showed up again and they stoned them to death. So they thought. They dragged Paul's lifeless body outside of the city gates of Lystra and left him there for dead. Timothy knew all this. He knew how the Lord had pulled him through and that was just the beginning. That was just his first go around. It got worse. Paul suffered mightily for preaching the gospel. And Timothy knew it. And Paul's reminding Timothy what very well may lay ahead for him. So where's this leave us? I've been a pastor for about 11 years now and I've never had someone throw rocks at my head for preaching the gospel. I'm guessing you haven't either. I was teaching a Bible class on persecution at my former parish in Laramie, Wyoming once and this little old lady said, Pastor, I've never been persecuted. What does that mean? Am I not a Christian? And she genuinely believed that she had never been persecuted And I think that's because she thought of persecution like rocks at the head, left for dead. That had never happened to her, like it's never happened to me. So what does persecution look like for us? For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Sound familiar? Something like that happening in our day and age? Yeah? What's that look like for you and me? It's important to note that 2,000 years before these crazy times, and they've been happening longer than we'd like to admit, it's not like this is something totally new. It's really not. But it's important to notice why people are willing to turn aside from the truth to myths. It's not because it's logical. 
It's not because it makes sense. It's not because the science has advanced so far and mankind has become so intelligent that we've thought our way out of God. No, Paul makes it very clear. Instead, to suit their own desires. It's always tied to the sinful flesh and what the sinful flesh desires. The rejection of the truth is always tied to what the sinful heart desires. And you know this as well as anyone because you, like me, still have a sinful flesh. We're swimming in a cesspool of truth denial. And you know what it's like to swim in that cesspool. You know the challenge that we face, the temptation that we face to just go back to our suburban castle or maybe our rural escape. To find our sanctuary from the storm. You know how easy it is to just escape it all. But it's still there. All around you, all the time. And it looks a little different throughout the different courses of of life for the young people who are here, the the elementary school children, the, the high school kids. You know what it's like when your friends wanna follow their desires, the desires of the flesh. You have them too, just like we all did. And your friends think you're weird if you don't go along with it because this is what everybody does. Everybody does what makes them feel good. And when you say, no, that's not how I'm going to live, you might not get rocks thrown at your head, but you'll get words thrown at you. Or you'll get a back turned to you. And that might hurt more than rocks. You're persecuted. And then you get older. And you're the one whose children seem like they'd like to just see you gone, out of the picture, with your outdated morals. It's a lot easier for you to either stay silent or maybe even conform rather than hear those hurtful words from the child you love so dearly. Jesus said some pretty strong words in our gospel lesson. Do not be afraid of them. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others... I will disown before my Father in heaven. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. You know how tempting it is to hide from pain. You know how tempting it is to seek comfort all the time. It's become a part of our culture. It's really a part of our identity as Americans. We we don't want to suffer. We don't want any discomfort or any 
pain, especially not in the form of persecution. But Jesus says it will come. Now, to be clear, he doesn't say that if there's no natural form of persecution around you, you have to go seek it out. This is not some form of torture-seeking. But he also says that when it does come, you must be willing to endure it for his sake. I know my heart, I know my sinful flesh and its desires for pleasure and comfort and how easy it is to try to run away from suffering when it comes my way and to keep silent and to deny Jesus. But you see, our God is different from us. When we have that view of comfort and pleasure, our perspective is so out of whack. We're just missing the big picture. God never misses the big picture. He never gets so focused on the immediate that he forgets the eternal. He was unwilling to see us suffer for eternity. He knows our sinful flesh and how it will exchange his grace and his love for the lie of the devil and he still loves us. He still loves us so much that he sent his son into this world to suffer in a way that we can't even begin to wrap our minds around as the father disowned his son. In that moment on the cross, forsaken by his father, Jesus endured the hell that we deserve for our sin, a suffering the likes of which we cannot even begin to imagine. He endured that so that you and I would not. He endured that so that you and I would be forgiven. And the win, the end game for us, is not a perfect life here, but bliss forever in paradise. And God never loses sight of that. And so at your baptism, when you were brought to faith in God and his sure promises of sins forgiven and eternal life, God performed a miracle in you. He raised to life a new person. A new person to do battle with that sinful flesh for the rest of your life here on this earth. You are no longer only sinful flesh. You are far more than that. You have a new self and that new self desires something that the sinful flesh is not capable of desiring. That new self craves the appearing of Jesus, the righteous judge. Listen to what Paul says again. I have fought the good fight I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not might, not I hope so, certainty. Will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. That new man inside of you, that new self, longs for the appearing of who? Jesus. The eternal son of God who came into this world for you, to rescue you for eternity. That you would be free from suffering, free from persecution, free from pain, free from death for how long? Forever. And that is so much better than anything this world can offer. And your new self knows that and your new self believes that and your new self clings to that. Martin Luther once said that every day 
ought to be one of contrition and repentance where the remembrance of your baptism drowns that old Adam. Now we know that bugger likes to swim. And he's gonna do everything he can to to swim and to try to get his sinful desires to come back up and win. But clinging to the promises of God, into whose triune name you've been baptized, that sinful flesh cannot win. That new self will always keep him at bay. That new self longs for the appearing of our Savior Jesus. I long for his appearing. You long for his appearing. The crown of righteousness is yours. It's a guarantee through the blood of Christ. This allows us to endure anything. Satan, I defy thee. Death, I decry thee. The world can't do anything to us. The holy ministry is one that preaches Christ no matter what, even in spite of persecution. Amen.